What's up, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Behind the Facade. I am your host, Gavin J. Gallagher, and on this podcast, I explore the mental and emotional game, often playing out subconsciously, both in your mind and the mind of everyone else in the real estate or property investment market. The key to success in this game is to master your mindset and behavior, to take control of your thoughts, your emotions, and most importantly, your ego. Welcome to the show. Guys, real quick before we begin, just want to ask you a quick favor. If you can, please stop what you're doing and leave a review for the podcast. Whatever platform you're listening in on, if you can give us a five star or whatever the highest rating is, it would be fantastic. And even better, if you found it useful in any way, please write that down on a very brief review if that's possible. It makes such a difference to how the podcast is received out there and pushed out on various platforms. That's all. Nothing else to ask. Now let's get on with the show. Hey guys, welcome back. This week I'm speaking with another guest by the name Matt Grady. Now this is not going to be one of the typical conversations because Matt is actually a former golf pro who went on tour with the PGA and all that. And why am I speaking to him? Well, it's very much around the mindset and that aspect of it. Uh, Matt has an interesting book that came out recently and um, we're going to get into some of the tactics he has around mindset. And the the thrust of this conversation is turning pro and how a lot of people who are in the, who would have say an amateur mindset, they will dabble in property. And so I'm going to bring it back to the property linkage. What dabbling in property is one thing. When you're professional, you go all in. And that's something that Matt talks about on our conversation today. So without further ado, my conversation with Mr. Matt Grady. Matt Grady, welcome to the podcast. Cheers, Gavin. Brilliant to be here. Uh, Matt, it's uh, it's not often that I get to speak with a golf pro or a former golf pro. And so this is going to be a very interesting conversation. It's going to be different from the usual. And for all of the listeners that were listening in that are expecting some real estate investment advice this week, uh, Matt's not here to give you real estate investment advice. I think the only touch point he has with property is a mortgage. Um, but what Matt has is a lot of really, really excellent advice on he's actually written a book called making the cut and um matt correct me if i'm wrong but the 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 subtitle of your book is turning pro in sport business and life that's right yeah i and i was gonna call it turning pro but then i realized stephen pressfield wrote a book called turning pro and the the war of arts i thought i better not kind of touch on that but it, it was in my mind thinking this is what I want to talk about. And this is the theory and the mindset of everything I do is, is in a professional. This is it. I mean, and it's like the, you know, that saying that you were saying that amateurs dabble, but professionals are all in. And this, there's a very big parallel between that concept and like real estate. Uh, When people are talking about becoming a property investor, a lot of the time it's like they buy a house as a, you know, they buy a house and they rent it. And then they might buy a second house. And so they have two rental properties. Like that's not a professional property investor. A professional property investor has got a portfolio and he might, you know, you can grow that portfolio to any size. And even if you don't have the capital yourself, you can raise money from investors and stuff like that. So I thought this was a really, really useful analogy. And like, you know, whether you're turning pro as a golfer or whether you're turning pro as a tennis player or, you know, rugby player, or oh, and we obviously Ireland had its big rugby win over the weekend, but uh, like turning pro 
as a concept is what we're here to talk about today. Um, before we get into that, I would like to turn back the clock on young Matt Grady uh, growing up as a kid and, you know, you decided to get into uh, golfing. That didn't like come from nowhere. Uh, tell us about, you know, your introduction to golf and how yeah. it kind of like dawned on you that you should, you know, think about becoming professional. Yeah, thanks, Kevin. So, I, so I'm 40 now. So we, we've got to rewind the clock 33, almost 34 years when I first you know, picked up a golf club and I had an influence and family influence. My uncle was a golf pro, he picked me up from school one day. He came over to visit from Germany and he was in a, got his, uh, his Porsche Carrera uh, with his, with the black checkered seats from the late eighties, early nineties. And I thought, wow, uh, I didn't really realize what that meant, but uh, it meant that he was doing well in his career, I think. Yes. And I, I said to my mom, you know, what does Uncle Dave do? I remember it like it was yesterday. He said he's a he's a golfer, he's a golfer. Right, okay, can I play golf? And uh, Dave cut me down some golf clubs. And we started, uh, so I'm from Leeds in Yorkshire. And we used to go and visit some family in Scarborough. And we got a, a static caravan. That's what we did then. And uh, outside the back of the static caravan, there was a probably about 12 acres of land, uh, all grass. Uh, with these golf clubs, uh, tore up that grass every weekend that we went there for hours and hours and hours up on end. And that's where, and with the support of my dad and my granddad, who were also interested in golf, not to the level of Uncle Dave, but they'd been around Dave and they had an interest in golf. They supported that that journey. And so, like, you're, let's say you're in your mid-teens and you're starting to kind of like having to make like I, I here in Ireland we call it junior cert and the leaving cert but in the UK it's the A-levels and the O-levels or, or vice versa yeah GCSEs and then A-levels yeah okay yeah. and when you're doing uh, so you have to knuckle down and start studying I imagine when you're looking at becoming a golf pro that is not necessarily the first thing that's on your mind well tell us a little bit about navigating schoolwork trying to become a golf pro well I love sport as well and a good role model that I mentioned in the book as well Simon Hall our PE teacher and I, I met up with him about a year ago it's the first time I've seen him in 22 years and he hadn't changed much and he and he remembered and he reminded me of something that I I didn't really remember he said I remember you coming to me one day and saying sir I don't know how to revise for these exams and he said I always knew that you know I was always in the first 15 rugby team playing for a football team outside of school golf. He said, I always knew you would do something in sport. Uh, but what was probably going on internally in my mind was I was starting to feel the pressures of education and performing academically. And my dad had a, a, a business. He was a plumbing and heating engineer in his own business. He was sort of six days a week, you could probably say, and around for the Sunday to take me to football and but plenty supportive. But they weren't really on my case with my education like I am with my daughter. So I was left to my own devices, but a young lad left to his own devices, you know, with a football, a rugby ball or a golf club, I'm I'm gone and I'm not really investing in school. And something that's been really important as I speak to my daughter is about being inspired. And I can tell when she's not in a good class is when she's not inspired by the learning and I definitely remember not being inspired by school and I started to think what am I going to do in life and and golf was getting better and I was starting to come through the ranks of the Yorkshire team as well the sort of elite amateur golf and 
Uh, and I managed to uh, land a job at a golf club in Leeds when I was about 15, working in the pro shop. And I was around some great influences. For the first time in a long time, I was around people who were doing something in the sport that I was passionate about. Right. And, and, and then it, it snowballed from there, really. It's uh, just going back to what you were saying there, I can completely resonate with the idea of being inspired by your teachers or whatever. Like I today I look back at my like when I was in school, I was I lacked the academic thing completely. I was an appalling student. I had no I had no concentration like I couldn't hold a concentration on the class, whatever. But what's really interesting. So I, I would have flunked out of history, flunked out of geography, flunked out of science as topics. But today, like I have an insatiable curiosity, like I spend hours like reading a history, uh, you know, geography about like, you know, the Ice Age and about all this kind of stuff. And 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 yet I took zero interest in that in school and like, you know, the, the universe and like cosmos and black holes and all this. Like I'm fascinated by all that. And yet when they were trying to teach you in school you're being it's been driven down your throat like you have to learn this whether you like it or not rather than inspiring people and getting them sort of to see why this is interesting as opposed to you must learn this you have to learn this pay attention stop you know being distracted at the back of the classroom it's so interesting you say this Gavin because I write in the book about this I said the irony is people come to me now with their problems about maths, about business, about strategy. And I was not the student. Uh, and I've written it in the book as well. I said the irony is, you know, I'm the guy they come to now, like you. <laughs> you know, you're, it's you're it's, probably it's amazing. Yeah. Problem. It's and it's I think there's something about I don't know, would would you consider yourself to have had ADHD or anything that as a young person? No, I've never I've never thought about that. No, I I, I mean, people think I've got OCD now, but it's just an an insatiable uh, eye for detail. I think I, I think you can safely call that OCD. <laughs> <'Cause> <laughs> <I have to. laughs> yeah, yeah. Like I, I take pride in my OCD and I take pride in my uh, ADHD now because it's funny, like it's it, once you realize, like uh, retrospectively, I haven't been diagnosed or anything like that, but I'm pretty sure I had it because I was so I found it so hard to concentrate. Like I still have my report cards from when I was in school and I can remember I can see the like spelling test one out of 50. OK, <laughs> I mean, it's hard to get one out of 50. Like Sorry to laugh. <laughs> but you're laughing so. <laughs> and, and it's like so I think to myself like now it's like the fact that I've that I'm doing all these things that I'm doing now it just shows that if you've got this kind of ADHD it's actually directing you channeling your energy and you you can actually have hyper focus in some areas because you have zero focus in kind of general stuff you know and so Anyway, anyway, I was really, back. I was really dabbling. I was, I was dabbling all the way. You know, I know we we talk about the, uh, the quote there, but um, yeah, I, I felt like I was never all in anywhere. You're right. Yeah, I just, just meandering around, just getting through. But it wasn't, it wasn't pleasurable. And the only out, the outlet where I was all in was was sports. Yeah, and, I'd say a lot yeah. of people can relate to that. And tell me this, I mean. You've decided, let, let's just move forward. You've decided that, you know, you're working in a shop. How long does it take from, let's say, dabbling and working 
shop to becoming a pro like what's what kind of hours of dedication did you have to put into that well the the, the sad news for me is when I, I found out when i was 15 and i was around the pros i said what do i need to do to qualify to join the pga which is the three-year academic uh, membership to become a member of the pga so and i think looking back it's so that you can represent the the governing body on uh, the association sorry the association in the most positive light uh, one of them is you need four gcse's minimum uh, minimum c this is going back 22 years i thought shit i better turn it up uh i i scrap you know this is i'm sort of embarrassed to say this but i um i scraped five but i got a d in maths so i needed to reset my maths GCSE whilst I was doing my A-levels. Right, right. Which was a nightmare. But I had a maths teacher who inspired me during my A-levels. And I remember telling Simon Hall, the, the my PE teacher, 20 years later, you know, last year, I said, if I would have had her as my teacher, I would have aced maths in school because she inspired me to learn. I tell you, there's a couple of parallels I can immediately like. So I was I, I was not the student at all. OK, and I was flunking through everything because I had zero interest. And then I went on a, on a family holiday to New York City. And when I was on that family holiday, I was just looking up at these skyscrapers and I was just blown away, like by 50, 80, 100 story buildings. And I remember just thinking, oh, my God, like this is unbelievable. And when I came home, I started drawing these towers and like you know just becoming obsessed with big big high tall buildings and stuff and as i started doing that family members were seeing these drawings i was producing really accurate sort of representations and they were like gavin you know what you're going to be you're going to be an architect and i was like oh what's an architect and suddenly a light goes off oh how do how do i become an architect well you need all these points to get into the college suddenly laser focus to get the points needed to get into architecture and like all of the all of the years of like paying no attention that did, did not help but from that day that i suddenly realized i needed to pay attention i suddenly could pay attention and so it's amazing how and also the right teachers like if you find the right teacher who can get through to you and kind of like it's I have daughters that are, you know, in uh, doing their leaving. So one of the, my daughters is doing leaving at the moment. And uh, it's the final exam you do before you go to university. And she was not very academic in you know junior school and stuff like that because she was in a school she didn't really like. And now suddenly I'm sending her to this uh, this institute that they have this kind of really uh, intense kind of teaching and stuff like that. And she's become a much, much better student because of the way that they teach. And so it's interesting, all of this kind of stuff. Anyway. <laughs> Focus in the mind, yeah. So we're in that stage of uh, 15, 16 years old, starting to being the right environment, uh, almost like finding my tribe at a young age. And, and there's a couple of other events that, that happened, and I could have gone in a very different direction uh, because one, a good friend of mine, I mentioned, but Shane um, worked in the golf club as well, behind the bar, and his uncle is a famous DJ, and Shane got me into DJing and, and being an all-in, perhaps I am ADHD, bought the decks, bought the records, went on to have a five-year sort of hobby career uh, working in, in bars. Uh, well, one bar in particular for about five years, which is where my, I met my other half 20 years ago. And that was a hobby that I was getting very well paid for whilst working six days at the golf club. 
uh, whilst I was doing my uh, so so that was really interesting. But it, that for me was a passion that I did well, but I didn't ever take serious as a career because I knew the implications of sort of family and relationships around staying up until one in the morning, DJ. But but I was around the right crowd who were influencing me in a positive way to pursue my goal of becoming a professional golfer. And um, yeah, so back just, to your question there. Yeah, sorry. In, in terms of like the hours that you would put in, is this like a nine to five job when you become a pro golfer like that? You're now just spending nine to, to five in the afternoon in the golf course or on the golf course. So, so I was still a student at the time doing my A-levels. So I was work, starting to pick up more hours around the lessons that I was doing. You know, I was just doing three subjects in A-levels plus my GCSE retake. Uh, so I started to find more hours. But uh, but one thing that is uh, very important, it was at the time and it's not as much anymore, actually, they're op- they've opened the door a lot, was playing ability. So you had to play to an extremely high standard. Um, you know, you had to be a scratch golfer or better to qualify, which means zero or better. And you had to evidence that in tournaments. So I had to keep my playing game up. So probably at this point, 20 hours at the golf club, working in the shop, uh, learning how to build uh, golf clubs as well, sort of doing the club repairs and being around the whole business. I was probably 10 hours at school, college, and then the rest of any other hours in the week were playing golf. Squeeze and working on fitness. Yeah. yeah, just squeezing absolutely everything out of out of my time. And then you start the PGA. Mm, sorry. Do you, do you do you think uh I mean obviously golfing it's how much of it is a natural talent and how much of it is you know driven by the amount of practice that you do and things like that I think physically it's a uh, I don't know about this sort of innate stuff but I think you have to be able to find a way no matter how it looks to be able to make good contact and uh dictate where the ball goes <laughs> and sort of you got it's more like a feel thing right. you can acquire and um hard to it's a really good question because uh i'd like to just brush it off and say you it's god-given talent sort of thing but i think you can you can develop the skills and with the right technology the right coaching can become you know, it's a learned skill um but obviously if you start young well it's a lot easier if you start That's young yeah, I didn't right start. Job. I didn't start as a young guy. Like I don't particularly enjoy golf, but I did live in the south of Spain, and I was literally my garden. The, the house I own in Spain has a garden that overlooks San Rocky Golf Club. Oh, what so a place! It's yeah, like, literally that was when I'm having my breakfast. I'm looking out on San Rocky's Golf Club, and so I, I was in this whole golfing circle for five or six years and and most of my friends played golf I rarely played it but it did kind of rub off on me so I had a a set of clubs and all that kind of stuff but I just sort of thought you know what I did not take this up at a young enough age I cannot learn this and I just don't have the interest in it and so therefore I just kind of dropped it Uh, I prefer you know the active sports like triathlon running all that yeah yeah absolutely I think people can become good but I don't, I've never seen anybody at the top level who wasn't playing when they were a kid. Yeah, I would have thought because that. of the skill involved. You know, I've seen adults become amazing runners, and they were hopeless athletes as teenagers and rock climbers and so on. But I think some of these games, you know, the I think you really have to. There's the hours. saying that you need your you need to do, put in your ten thousand hours. And the Gladwell stuff. Yeah. 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 And I mean, I would have thought that like if you start as a young person playing golf, then by the time you're 
20, you've done 10,000 10, hours. And there, I, I calculated it as well. I think by about 50, being the kind of, maybe I am a bit uh, <laughs> on the spectrum. I think by the time I was 15, I'd done about 10,000 to 15, 10, 10 to 12,000 hours. Um, so there you go. I mean, that, that's the evidence that I would say that, yeah, it does make a big difference. Because otherwise, how do you go pro as a 30-year-old? Like, oh, if I start playing every day now, I'm sure I have a job. How am I going to, like, you know, kind of find the time to do 10,000? Very difficult. Very difficult, yeah. So tell us, I mean, give us a little insight into when you're a pro, is that the pro on tour or is that the pro working at the golf course? Uh, how how do you differentiate the two? Yeah, so two very different sites. You probably, funny enough, an exception would be Ian Poulter, who turned pro through the PGA route that I did as well, but wasn't necessarily a brilliant player. He wasn't a low handicap. He was a low handicap, but it wasn't as low as, as me or others, actually, but went on to be a you know prolific Ryder Cup player, never lost a match in wow. uh, singles, I don't believe. So, um, but there is there are very much two different types. And, and through the three years of the qualification, you learn about business and tax, you learn about club repairs, rules and tournaments, biomechanics. Uh, you, you learn the whole business as well as playing ability and coaching. Um, but you soon know, I think you probably know through play, playing regional events at a smaller scale, whether you're going to compete and whether you've got the... Um, the mindset and the ability to manage your state whilst playing for money, because as soon as you turn pro, you know you're in the you're in the money game. You, you're and the putting down money, right. you're earning money. Yeah, absolutely. So what what I did is, uh, given that I wasn't, I didn't go to uni or academically, I decided I'm going to qualify with the PGA, which took three years, and then I'm going to ramp up my playing at the same time. So after about so turning pro at 18 qualifying in the pj at 21 so a full member got that can never lose that you uh, i then decided i need to seek sponsorship to play and i put together a so i could have stayed in the club route pro shop club pro club fitting coaching but i aspired to be a player since i started so i wanted to pursue that dream and uh, put together a spreadsheet gave it to the club secretary ken mccray and he distributed to the members in the early 2000s and I didn't realize how affluent the golf club was, but they very kindly put together about 40 grand in a few days. Wow. And that was me. I was straight to tour school. It's interesting. And tell me this. I mean, just like I'm very, very inexperienced in this kind of stuff, so I don't really understand. But I mean, to be a golf pro working at a at a, at a club or something like that, what you've described with the coaching and all that, I presume that is is a, you're describing a pro as just like having a job. Uh, it, it's yes. kind of a modest enough living. Whereas when we're talking about Tiger Woods and guys like these that are earning hundreds of millions, it's because they've made the name for themselves and they're now, they've got Nike knocking on their door and all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Like the, the, the amount of people that make it to the big time like that versus yeah. the numbers of people that are, just a club pro and like you're both pros but there's a very difference in income and that you're taking home yeah absolutely yeah it's like go-karting an f1 sort of thing it's yeah uh, yeah, yeah there's, there's a golf there's a huge golf and a huge learning curve on the way as well and many layers to go through uh i mean you could skip the you could skip the whole queue and qualify for main tour school uh or call it, qualify through that route straight in or you could grind it out on the regional satellite and uh, sort of European or Asian or North American tour, corn ferry tours and these kind of smaller circuits uh, to get you away. 
yeah so there's a big journey to get there it, it sounds like it and is there a point where you say do you know what i need to i, I don't know what what was the kind of motivation to leave the pro world behind and, and get into business and stuff is it is it based on income or is it based on you kind of you lose kind of interest in in what you're doing why why would you drop a career as yeah. a pro golfer to yeah. get into business yeah i think yeah the the crux of it really was um i was starting to i was self employed you know, as a golf pro you kind of running your own business you, you are your own income source as well and i was starting to think about family and we were starting to think about buying our first property and uh, and really realized that I couldn't produce anything stable to uh, to show for. So I decided uh, I'm going to see what life outside of golf looks like. Uh, and a few people that I knew said, hey, you should try this. You're really good with people and you've got a natural aptitude for this and self-motivation drive, blah, blah. You should look at sales. So I looked at, um, you know, I took a role in sales, sort of direct sales role with a, a furniture company called Sharps Bedrooms. And I was in direct sales, you know, I was making calls and booking appointments for designers and very quickly sort of ruffled a few feathers there and got to the top of the team as well. And, uh, you know, those who were doing well uh, were really happy that I was doing well in such a short space of time. But those were, that weren't doing very well felt a little bit embarrassed and, and didn't like me a lot. Um, they don't like to be outshined. Yes, it's mad, isn't it? And, and the book, uh, is it The Power of Robert Greene? Never outshine the master. And I was outshining a few people who thought they were the masters. But uh, anyway, so culturally, I wasn't uh, loving that. But what happened is the, the the group and business went into administration, although Sharp survived. Dolphin and Mobin went home the same day, gone, never to be seen again. Wow. And I thought, you know, I've just started to get some stability so I can buy this property and this is going on. I, I don't need this. And for the first time ever in all my life, created a CV in my sort of late 20s, early 30s, put it online as you do. I think it was Monster or something at the time. And, and Michael Page picked it up. I went for an interview and got the job. And, and So for tell last, us, for, uh, for us Irish audience, Michael Page, what does that mean? Who so Michael that? Page is a large recruitment business, so about 5,000 staff, one of the global sort of big players, more corporate recruiter in the industry okay. all, all disciplines and they've got regional offices all over the place so this and is a headhunting recruitment business yeah, yeah that's and right yeah so you fitted into that role better i fit into that role yeah 2011 yeah july 2011 dropped into michael page but actually uh left there after six months so here's the crazy thing i had one job for 12 years golf pro and in the last 12 years i've had 12 jobs my god <laughs> but for seven years out of the 12 i've been in two places right right i made some very quick moves when i knew i was in the wrong place and michael page for me was a discretionary bonus let's work on the team benefit you know if the team wins you win and i was very much still an ind individual contributor and player and couldn't associate somebody's poor performance with my good performance and why uh, should really, you suffer? I, yeah, why should you suffer? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I suffered for six months. Um, you know, I'd, I'd got off the mark and done what I had been asked to do and more and, and wasn't rewarded for it. And I said goodbye to that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I don't think that that kind of, me, me, what is it, meritocracy? Merit, yeah, very you much. Know. So tell us, I mean, you, you mentioned when we were chatting uh, just before the call started, you were saying that you've actually met 
James Kahn. And James Kahn is the is the famous recruiter that 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 was a, a dragon in the Dragon's Den for quite a few years. Tell us yes. about that experience because a lot of people like would recognize him as yeah. a very successful man. He made yeah. hundreds of millions selling his business, didn't he? Uh, yeah, yeah. He made uh, nearly 100 million selling Alexander Mann Solutions, which is one of the original recruitment businesses. He is a bit of, of a you know, pioneer in the recruitment industry. And um, James runs a business that uh, has been responsible for acquiring a number of other recruitment businesses. Now, the model's not for everything, and it didn't work for us at the time as well. And um, But I'd read his book, The Real Deal. I think I have that. It's a good book, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I like it. And Theo Pafitis has got a book as well, a very nice book. I like, I like the dragons. I like their stories. And we were, uh, we've been called upon as a potential acquisition as well, uh, to, to looking at our business to be acquired. And, and I learned from James that uh, he had a, a model. and We were very interested in learning how... He'd grown and sold a business uh, for nearly 100 million. Um, wow. Yeah. I don't know what yeah. the uh, transaction lingo is. You know, he sold it and he walked away with nearly 100 million. So we were very keen. How do you do that, Matt? Tell us how do, how do, you, <laughs> how do you sell a business for 100 million? Well, something that I mean, I mean yeah, huge successful brand it, it built there, but something that I'd implemented in golf years ago when I realized that on, on the, um, on the Ferris wheel or whatever it is, just almost, you know, the modern day rat race, trying to do everything uh, for nearly 80, 90 hours a week. Um, there's a point that comes where you have to transition and think, okay, what am I doing? Is this the right thing to be doing? How do I prioritize my efforts to get the maximum output from my practice? And it, as a result, my events and performance and what James has done and Rob Moore documented this in an interview was that he had a system for every job in the business right and he built solid systems processes and an operational manual for uh scaling and uh replicating roles and scaling businesses in all industries i believe um and and that is a model that i think um works i think work because i've seen it work as well in a small in smaller and larger businesses as well the 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 biggest problem I think people have is that you hire somebody, you train them up, and then they leave, and you have to start back at square one. And so the idea of that model, by the sounds of it, is that as you're training somebody, you're also building a document on how that person is being trained so that when they leave, you can actually take that document and hand it to the next person and say, there you go. That's exactly what the job is. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's a working formula and, and something that's constantly evolving and, uh, and to, it can be quite detailed and maybe laborious to do. So, so I think the way I've implemented over time is like many things, just start really small and get the foundations and then add and, and jazz it up, as you may like, to make it look appealing. But but really providing the fundamentals to do the bare minimum to right. get the task done. and. And I think on many occasions I've had to go through every process. And let's just say something like setting up a social media account. You know, what are the step by step? Because I'd started training people internally in businesses on how to maximize their efforts through LinkedIn. And I realized that trying to tell them and inspire them didn't really do it for them because they just wanted to know how. So I started copy and pasting all the 
click this, click this, click this, click, send this, send this, send this, measure that, did that work, try that. Uh, so create an action plan. An action plan, yeah. People want act, tactical action steps, don't they? Yeah, I think so. You know, if you could give anybody a, a formula to do, I mean, the majority of people work, probably won't follow it like a diet. You know, here's a formula, follow it. Because there's so much information and people are just going everywhere to get it. And uh, JP says, you know, if the light, if, if uh, what is it, if, if information was uh, lacking, no, yeah. I, I'm just trying to think, the library would be the richest place in the world. Okay, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm brewing, I'm slaying the quote. But um, <laughs> people, I think, tend to ruminate on information too long uh, where they should be taking action on items and, and finding out for themselves what the results are. And it's an iterative process. Like you, 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 like as yeah. I've heard a couple of people, you have to be prepared to take action. Even if you fail, you at least, you know, that that route that you tried doesn't work. And so now you're on to the next. One. Whereas a lot of people will sit back and ruminate over what's the perfect action that I should take. And they'll have yeah. 12 options and they won't be able to choose one. So nothing gets done basically. Yeah, Whereas absolutely. the person who takes action will have tried nine of them. And we'll be getting pretty close to hitting the right one by the time. Absolutely, the yeah. yeah. Interesting. And I think probably, and the the uh, I think back to sport and golf is there are fundamentals that need to be done in order to get the desired result to hit the ball in the direction you want to hit it. You know, it's 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 sweat, it's grip, stance, ball alignment, club face. Yeah, you know, there's a couple of things, and do that right, and you're not far off. Yeah, and I yeah. just bring that into business. And, and when I want to do a task, I, I break it down to component level and then uh, put that into action and remove unnecessary items to make it a smaller list as we go. So so take me through that. I mean, you, you were telling me earlier about your, your sport and acronym. Um, wh where do you use that? And, and how can people listening today use that? Yeah. I think if you're about to um, take on a new endeavor or do something new, I think there's a bar in technology and, and sort of technical uh, items that you might need. I, th I thought of a process that somebody could follow that could be replicated and improved upon every time. So I found the acronym SPORT. This is before chat GBT as well. So I, it took me bloody ages, as you can imagine. So SPORT, is, so the S stands for setting up for success. And that's laying the foundations of what you're about to do. What do I need to do? What are the equipment I need? What is the knowledge I need? What is the script I need? What is the link that I need to send somebody to buy something? What do I need to know about this product in order to, to sell it? The bare, ba the bare minimum and basics of, of what it is I need to move forward. Okay. And then the P is, is process and developing a process that works for you to get optimum results. But you don't really know about the optimum results until we get to the T. The O is that we're going to find obstacles along the way. Of course, yeah, lots and of And how do we come over those obstacles and how do you build the mindset to come over those and to be aware that they're inevitable? Yeah, it's not just you based. Yeah, absolutely. And whilst you're dealing with obstacles, you need the R, which is resilience. And, and I think that's the secret source, really, and the secret weapon that most people lack because they uh, try and bypass the process 
and get to the result by clicking uh, one click by arrive tomorrow. You know, my daughter nearly has a breakdown if something doesn't arrive on time. Uh, you know, she's not built the resilience of waiting for something in the post. Or are things not working or whatever, yeah. Yeah, why is this not turning on? Well, do you know what? Sometimes it doesn't turn on and you just gotta you just gotta get over that and deal with it. So the building resilience, and then the final letter T is triumph. Hopefully, you're having triumph here when you're putting this in, but also testing as well. So testing the assumption is that the best setup? Is that the best process? How did I deal with these obstacles? What obstacles? occurred in in sales we talk about objection handling uh and, and when you list all the objections you the figure out there's not, it's not yeah. that many yeah there's not that many can we remove any how, do, how can we find a way around that through better process uh, so we don't come across as many obstacles uh, right. but we're still building resilience along the way by tackling them and taking action and testing again and testing, testing and tweaking and testing and tweaking. That's and that's sport. You know, how many times has David Beckham taken a free kick? I'm showing my age. You know, how many times has Tiger hit, hit a wedge from 100 yards? How many times did I hit a wedge from 100 yards? Maybe not as many as Tiger because he's still going. But, you know, as many in my youth as anyone else that was achieving a high level. Yeah, so that's, that's, my, that's my acronym that I've transitioned into the, the business world. And and so tell us what you're doing today, uh, Matt. And obviously, this uh, that's a leading question because you work. Yeah, with yeah. you got the. Uh... <laughs> <laughs> my my yeah. uh, my performance coach is JP Davillier, and Matt here works with JP and uh, is part of JP's team. So tell us what what your priorities are these days, Matt, working with JP. Yeah. Absolutely. So um, probably about five or six years ago, I read about JP in in one of the books. Daniel Priestley's books, Keepers of Infants. Oh, wow, who is this guy? You know, he sounds supernatural almost. I don't know if you remember the story about the, the 500 pounds, the five cat. I was like, holy crap. I thought I need to be that guy. It's crazy. He doesn't, he probably doesn't, hasn't heard me say this many times, but I thought I need that in my life. So I started implementing those things. About a year ago, thought one day I'll find him on LinkedIn, found him connected. I said, I'm running a podcast for leaders. I want to share inspiration that otherwise people wouldn't have access to. And he agreed to speak. And we got on a phone call. He was in the gym on the treadmill. And we were talking about all the things we had in common. Martial arts is something I did as a teenager. More karate. I wasn't really sort of Muay Thai or fighting. I did it for eight years. My dad was a black belt in, in Shotokan karate. And he took me as well. Uh, so I learned a lot of discipline through that. Uh, martial arts, sport professional sport DJing yeah you have a lot in common yeah yeah and then and then kind of uh sales and then coaching I thought wow this is just great we've got so much in common we started speaking he invited me to join the uh the group as well and speak and talk about the book and and so on and we just kept in touch and uh one day recently Mark uh Bryant master coach in the business went out to Dubai to spend a few days with JP and the gang and he said, do you know who's really interested in developing his coaching is Matt Grady. He said, I wish he would have told me a year ago. Anyway, we had a call. Uh, we started talking about my future, my goals. I, I don't know what it is about turning 40, but I've had a lot of epiphanies over the last year. I thought, do you know what? what am I doing? All of the things seem to line up to me surrounding myself with you and JP and Mark and others 
to bring it to life for on full-time basis. I'll be coaching director within the business. So I'm spending a large amount of time on both internal and external clients. So managing and supporting our uh, members of the mastermind community, but also looking at ways of how we can grow the community and um, export JP to more events, speaking and uh, help him uh, elevate his game by taking the admin away from supporting uh, supporting the business, uh, but at the same time also developing my own uh, style of coaching through the lessons I've learned through sport and business, uh, so I can help others be their uh, highest performing self. Brilliant. What I was going to say I'll do is uh, I'll put a link in the show notes to um, to the program and to your uh, to your LinkedIn and stuff like that. So if people want to connect with you or whatever, that they can do that. Um, is there any final message that you'd like to share or is there anything, any question that I didn't ask you? I'm going to plug the, I'm going to plug our live events. That's this weekend. It may have come after, it may come after the podcast has launched, but um, we're running a live event this weekend called Becoming Non-Negotiable. And it's about how you can learn the disciplines and the deeper disciplines of wealth, health and happiness and how you can implement non-negotiables into your life. And I think probably one thing I'd leave it on would be the the one thing that I've found actually over the last couple of years since meeting JP and surrounding myself with a very different group of people is uh, decisions are very easy when the value is clear. Clarity on goals and where you want to go is is underrated. I found that something that I spend most time on nowadays, as well as doing the doing, uh, is is getting really clear on what I'm doing because once you're absolutely crystal clear on what you want to do, everything just seems to take care of itself. It's one of my top values is clarity, focus, and discipline are the, are the three that are kind of front of mind, you know? And there's so much comes off the back of that. And I'll, I'll ask you about, I'll ask you a question about that as well. Uh, Gavin, but the one thing we spoke about previously as well, just the recording was the 90, 10 principle. I'm just making the number up and it's, my theory is, and what I found is that in sport, we spend about 90% training and practicing and preparing for the main event, just like you with your cycling and triathlons and running. Uh, you would spend 90% of your schedule, almost three months, let's say, leading up to one event that might take four hours, for example. Yeah. Uh, and that gets missed in a lot of businesses. And I think a lot of people, where they're going wrong is they're spending 90% trying to figure out how to do the doing and then about 10% faffing around doing the doing and not to its highest level. If they flip the switch a little bit and said, I'm going to focus 90% of my attention on becoming an expert in what I do, when I get on the phone to the prospect or when I pitch a deal or when I go to buy a property or negotiate with a bank, I'm turning up the Tiger Woods of my business or whoever, you know, your role model might have been. Yeah, Tiger, Tiger mightn't be the best one. <laughs> no, no, he's not really the best one, is he? Uh, but yeah, it's interesting how, how I just see a lot of people not showing up as a yeah. pro. You know, they're making money out of something, but they're really half... Half asking. Yeah, yeah, it's true. Yeah, absolutely. Matt, final question I wanted to ask. Um, well, the first, before I ask the final question, how can people find you? Is the best way LinkedIn or what's what's the... 
I think LinkedIn's where I've been building my uh, deepest following over the last few years, or last last 11 years. That's where I share most of my thought leadership, content, and um, guidance on, on how to work with me. Uh, I think I'm learning a lot through JP about being more omnipresent and uh, available across all channels to meet people where they are. There are not a lot of people hang out on LinkedIn. Our audience, I would say, has a good connection with LinkedIn. Uh, but yeah, if you find me on LinkedIn, you'll find me everywhere because I've, I've done one of those link trees too. Oh yeah, the link tree is cool. Matt, my final question is the, um, so you're 40 now. Yes. Uh, knowing today what you know, um, if you had the opportunity to speak to your 18 to 20 year old self, what advice would you be giving that young Matt that you wish you had known now, now, now that you know what you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, the early days, the Internet and websites were just starting to sort of become prolific. And I did. I set up a website for my sponsors. Uh, I wish I would have documented my journey and life better so that I could share it with others, but also so that I could bring more awareness to what I'm doing. And I, I found that people are interested in people doing interesting things. And I gave up too early on getting more sponsorship and support. I didn't know how to ask. So I think probably off the back of that, where this is going, maybe I'm just figuring this out as we go along is, become better at asking for what I want uh, and, and obviously a better salesperson as a young guy. If I would have marketed myself differently, been willing to ask more people for help, I could have maybe sustained my career in golf a lot longer. It's uh, interesting. Yeah. You know, it's funny you say that because I can recall when I was a teenager, late teens, I, I started a small little business uh, valeting cars and it was, it was a business that was um, just kind of like in the summer months, I would bring all this kind of bucket and sponge and I br brought it to a car park that was a busy car park and I got them to, to let me take a space and to clean cars there. And I put ads on all the windows of the cars that came in and things like that. And when, when I went back to school, I just said, okay, that's the end of that. And I basically like stopped the business. But the following, you know, a few years later, I met the guy that I used to kind of speak to every day that was working there. And he said, you know, after you left, hundreds of people were coming at saying, where's the young guy that cleans the cars? And I retrospectively, I look and I kind of go, that was me focusing on only what I wanted instead of thinking, what's the opportunity here? And I could have easily hired somebody to come in and keep the business going and like yeah. agreed to split the revenue in some yeah. way or whatever. And that would have been a business that I could have come back to at the next summer instead of it just dropping off open, you know, like that. So absolutely. We all learn with experience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think this, you sort of see these points and think, bloody hell, you know, if I would have just, I, I made the mistake as well of thinking that I could do everything on my own without the support of others, you know, being that driven guy that oh, I'll just do it and I'll make, I'll make it work. And if I can't make it work, I'll make something else work yeah. instead of just sticking at it. Um, but yeah, I'm not afraid of asking for, for any help now, which is yeah, lesson learned. <laughs> yeah.
Well, Matt, it's been a real pleasure um, having you on the podcast. Thanks so much for your time. Absolute pleasure. And uh, good luck with all your endeavours and hope to catch you very soon again. Thank you, Gavin. Really appreciate it. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Behind the Facade. If you have any questions or topics you'd like me to cover in future episodes, please connect with me via the Facebook group that is called Behind the Facade Community. Alternatively, you will find me on social media. My handle is Gavin J. Gallagher. You can stay up to date with all of my content and the various projects I'm working on over on my website, GavinJGallagher.com. And while you're there, please do add your name to the Join My Tribe thing over on the right-hand side. This will ensure you're kept up to date via my weekly newsletter. All of these links are in the show notes below. That's all for now. I will see you guys in the next episode.